Hello, this is episode 31 of the Cognitive Gamer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Blessing, professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Tampa. I use games to both explain and explore concepts in psychology. Today, we're going to have another discussion with Dr. Jennifer Blessing, a developmental psychologist at the University of Tampa. We're excited to talk about this particular topic, aren't we, Jen? I am very excited about this topic. This is part of uh, the research I like to do, as well as part of my dissertation work. Actually, I'm sure you probably caught yourself while playing a game considering what your next move should be and thought to yourself, what's the other player going to do? Most games have that character where you need to consider what your opponent might do in order to better plan what your current move should be. Or maybe it's the type of game where knowing what your teammates know or don't know will allow you to make a better play in the game. That's part of what makes games so entertaining because you often need to figure out how another person thinks in order to help you play the game. That type of thinking is what we're going to talk about today with Jen. That sounds like it should be something psychologists have thought about and studied, right? And we have, exactly. So thinking about what someone else knows or doesn't know and how that might shape their behavior is an area of research we're going to talk about today called theory of mind. Now then, this reminds me a little bit about chess, where most people believe that grandmasters think several moves ahead in order to play the game. That's not really true, but when people play strategy games, there is this mix of, if I make this move, they would probably respond in this way. So you try to maximize your position in the game and minimize your opponent's position. Now then, our our son, who's uh, 16 now, really likes to play strategy games uh, with Komet and Scythe being current favorites. It's been interesting to see him through the years get better and better at playing these types of games, at least partly because he's gotten good at figuring out what other people will do in response to his moves. Now, Jen, what more specifically have developmental psychologists studied about here in this area? So the idea of theory of mind is all about imparting um, a or having a knowledge about another person's mental state. What are their beliefs, their desires, what's their knowledge? And this has then obviously direct implications for gaming. But it started with a publication in 1978 with Premack and Woodruff, who were actually looking at non-human primates. And did they impart mental states to others? There's a whole interesting side work on animals and their ability to think about other people's mental states. But most of the work is on humans, and in particular kids, that there seems to be this important developmental change. If you look at three-year-olds, they're not really good at understanding another person's point of view, another person's knowledge, and they can't separate what they know from what someone else knows. But something seems to develop, change, mature between ages three and about five because we see stark differences between what a three-year-old does with regard to other people's knowledge and what a five-year-old does. That's why I only play chess with three-year-olds. Exactly. Well, three-year-olds are very focused on winning and they don't care what you're doing, probably. But right, five-year-olds would be better at figuring out your next move. So the bulk of the theory of mind work has suggested that there's something going on um, with regard to how we shift our understanding of this is what I know versus this is what someone else knows. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Some of the classic tasks that we use to assess if a child has achieved a theory of mind is you might show them a box of crayons, okay, have them shake it, 
might sound like crayons and you ask them, what do you think's in here? Crayons? Crayons, right. But then you open it up and you show them that in fact, instead of crayons, there's candles in there. Candles in a crayon box. Right. Okay. So I now ask you what's in the box. Uh-huh. Well, what's in the box? Candles. Candles. There we go. <laughs> and Unless then, you're a magician. Are you a magician? I'm not a magician. So then you close it up and you ask the child, okay, your mom or this teddy bear or someone who's not in the room and who hasn't seen this, uh-huh. you're going to show them a closed crayon box. What are they going to think is in there? Probably crayons like I did. Well, that's if you're five. If you're three, you're going to have a harder time distinguishing between mm. what you currently know and what your mental state was before that knowledge changed upon the opening of the box. So three-year-olds are like, oh, no, they're going to say candles. And five-year-olds are much more likely to go, they're going to think it's crayons. It sounds like crayons mm-hmm. when you shake it. And why would you think anything else is in there? Okay, now this is called theory of mind. This is called theory of mind. Okay. So that's a, a static kind of, but that's about knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. if you know that someone else knows this box doesn't contain crayons, that might change how you interact with them. Um, uh, another task would be about if um, a child is listening to a story about others kind of playing tricks on them. They put their toy, uh, there's a Sally Ann task, and, and Sally goes and puts her, her marble in a basket, and she leaves the room. Anne, naughty Anne, moves that marble from the basket to a box, and then leaves. Well, it's not nice. It's not nice at all. And Sarah, Sally comes back, and you ask the child, where is she going to look for the marble? And a child who has a theory of mind can balance out I know something about what happened when Sally wasn't there, but that's my knowledge versus Sally's knowledge is I put it in my basket. Maybe Sally knew Anne was a trickster, but that's not really, that. that's a little bit more multiple order theory of mind. A lot of this um, work has been done, was done in, in the 80s, but mostly a lot in the 90s. And it's not, but it's not all that new at some level because it ties back to what we know about Piaget. You and I have talked about Piaget. I've heard about Piaget. (laughs) We've talked about Piaget on this podcast. And Piaget had mentioned that at about this age, kids tend to be very egocentric. They can't take the perspective of other people. Now, Piaget wasn't thinking about it in terms of knowledge, like I know this and you don't. But he... um, talked about it from literally from your perspective he created what was called the three mountain task where there was sort of a um a three-dimensional um uh set of mountains and different displays in front of a child and if the child's sitting on one side of the table it looks very different from where the adult is sitting on the other side of the table and the child is not going to be able at a young age they're not going to be able to say well you might I see this tree, but you can't see this tree. Mm-hmm. Um, think about it from, I, I always talk, tell my students, it's when I'm standing in front of the classroom and I am, I can see all of their faces, but the kids in the back of the classroom can only see the back of heads and my face. That different perspective uh, Piaget was talking about. So all of this suggests that there's something that has to occur in our development about our cognition that recognizes that how we think is very much an internal state 
that is very distinct from the internal states of others. So what I know about playing chess is minimal, um, but <laughs> if I were to be playing chess or a game with someone that I am going to have to balance out what I know with what they know. Now you said, so three-year-olds don't have a theory of mind. Five-year-olds do. We, right. So mostly. So, so something special happens in those year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. Any idea what? There's a couple of different theories. I mean, part of it is, is maturation. Part of it is, um, uh, working through this ability to literally see something from another person's perspective, mm -hmm. um, putting it together. We're not always clear what's going on, but it is sort of this part of being human. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that, that speaks to some of the differences that we do see, that those who can't put it together, um, there is a lot of a growing body of work that was started by a researcher named Simon Baron Cohen that started with the premise that those who are um, on the autism spectrum have more difficulty mind reading. Now, obviously, I don't mean this in an ESP, ESP sense, but that when we are engaged in thinking about the intentions and beliefs and desires of others, we are taking another person's perspective. And, and Baron Cohen's work suggested that that's a difficulty for a lot of people on the autism spectrum. Um, and yet there's also still some fleshing out that, um, well, let, let me go back to this so that those on the, on the spectrum, there's something that hasn't quite clicked perhaps neurologically okay. in making this distinction. But when you ask what happens between three and five, um, I'm going to just throw a magical maturation out there because we're not exactly clear because there's still some more maturation to go on beyond that because there's even more work nowadays on second order theory of minds well i know i'm sally and i know that Anne is a trickster but maybe she doesn't want me to think she's a trickster so it's that i know that you know that i know what i really want and so i'm going to tell you something different so in order to get to a point where we can all engage in more recursive thinking about people's knowledge and desires and beliefs, there's some maturation of cognition that's got to go on. Okay. Now then, uh, to bring this back to game playing, I mean, this seems like it has uh, a lot, potentially a lot to do with game playing because it is this back and forth, right? So I'm going to, I should, if I did this, then the other player is going to do that. And then you call this second order if I then think, okay, but if I don't want him to do that, but want him to do this, then maybe I should do this, and then I'll do that. So there is this back and forth between what I, how I'm going to play the game versus how the other person is going to play the game, and I take that into account as I make my moves. Right, and it's this internal back and forth. Right, I'm yes. making my guesses based on what I think I know about your desires and stuff. Um, now, the Japanese have this notion, and since I'm not Japanese, I have an imperfect understanding of this, I think, but they call, uh, they have a word called yomi, Y-O-M-I. I saw that on a sushi menu. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yomi is all about uh, knowing the 
the, what the other person is going to do, uh, the, the other moves that the other person is going to uh, uh, is going to make. I think it grew out of the uh, Street Fighter type games uh, where you're you're battling another opponent and you want them to do a particular type of move so you can counter it. And so being in the mind of your opponent is what this Yomi is all about. And that sounds pretty much related to what you're talking about here with regards to theory of mind. Oh yeah, I um. I know we'll talk a little bit about different games, but I remember when Taboo was really a popular game in, in my household growing up, and I loved playing Taboo with my sister on my team mm -hmm. because I could look at whatever the target word is, right, and then you have words you're not supposed to say, but I could give her a clue because I could get into the mind of my sister mm. that had nothing to do with those, you know, uh uh, prohibitive words, right? Mm -hmm. So if the word were, for example, uh, something about, you know, a, a, I can't think of a, a particular example from Taboo, but I could give her clues that got into the mind of her. She wasn't my opponent in this case. She was my teammate. But I could say, when we used to commute to work together and sing that song, and she would probably get the right answer because we had a shared knowledge base that is me drawing on my theory of my sister's mind and her knowledge. So obviously then the more you interact with a person or play a game with a person, uh, the better of a sense you have of, of their mind, a better theory of mind that you have of that particular person. Oh, absolutely. I think having, first of all, having the, the rudimentary understanding that everybody's got a different knowledge base, mm -hmm. everybody's got different experiences and beliefs and desires, and therefore they're mental state is going to be different than yours but then how well you know their mental state or and their their knowledge so we just recently played a decrypto with our kids uh, yeah. and our daughter and I were at one team and you and our son were the other team and her daughter was giving us clues, giving me clues. As you do in decryptos, you give words or clue phrases to kind of guess the uh, the break the code, right? The right. three the three number code. And based on my knowledge of our fourteen year old daughter, she gave me a clue that pinged to me. Oh well, she uses that word oftentimes in a negative connotation, so it must be related to this. The clue she's giving with that word means this. And she was baffled that I got it totally wrong. I think I got all three numbers wrong in that, that guess. And of course she was mad because we lost the game, but she, I was baffled because I was drawing on a kid who I know very well. And I thought I knew where she was going and she took it in the wrong turn. <laughs> I think we've all had that experience of playing a game like Taboo or Decrypto or Codenames where you have your, your team members and you can draw upon your knowledge of what you believe your other team knows in order to give better clues, more specialized clues. And you don't mm -hmm. have to draw, um, make assumptions. You know, if you're playing like at a convention or, or with people who you don't know very well, you can't make those sorts of assumptions. Uh, you can maybe assume because they're of a certain age or uh, like a particular sort of thing, some of the things they might not may may know or may not know. Um, but we've all been in that situation playing those types of games in which we can assume or maybe not assume that they know a particular thing based on this thing called theory of mind. Right. Now, again, I don't play chess, but my understanding is that grandmasters and experts, they do study other players, right? 
So if you know you're going up against mm-hmm. a certain player, you're going to study their moves. Much like an NFL team might pl- um, study the pl- the alleged playbook of another team, or you're trying to get in that mindset or watch the replays of other opponents, be they sports, be they chess, etc. So if you have a good core knowledge of your game that you're about to play, be it chess or football or code names or, or commit, and then you have a better sense of who you're playing against, mm-hmm. you may find yourself at an advantage then in terms of taking advantage of making guesses about what you think the intentions might be based on the mental state of your opponent. I think intentions is a good word there for, for, for strategy choices and those sorts of games like chess and we mentioned side and commit games that we like to play as a as a family. Uh, I'm not a big chess player myself, um, but I've, I know the research and I think I've talked a little bit about the research here. You know, chess players actually don't have better memories than, right. than us, right? right? They have pretty average memories. Um, but they're really good at recognizing patterns and um, uh, this board position that might have been used in a past game or whatnot. So if you know your opponent and their proclivities um, as to how they might want to play, you can use that knowledge in terms of, well, the board position currently looks like this. And, you know, chess people really don't look at four or five moves ahead. They only look at, I, I believe, a couple of moves ahead. Um um, but uh, what differentiates them is their ability to recognize chess positions. And so if you kind of know what your opponent, what types of positions your opponent prefers, you can use that information to help guide them into a particular position that will better your position and, and worsen their particular position. Which is why our son roundly defeats you at scythe. That's right, yes, because <laughs> yeah. I don't give it uh, as much thought. And he, he does give it a lot of thought and does kind of go back and forth uh, at least more more than what I do in terms of, okay, well, if I do this, then he's going to do that, and then uh, so on and so forth. One of the uh, phrases that we've uh, started to use in our family when we play the, um, especially the the games that might involve some bluffing or, you know, kind of hiding who you are, uh, things like apples to apples, where um, the, the phrases become, know your audience. So... Right. You are notorious for playing a card if um, our son or daughter is the one going to ch- make the choice of which is the best answer, right? When you you blindly put pick up whose cards are what and they decide, you know, what's the funniest or the smelliest, <laughs> you often will routinely put down not what you think is the funniest or smelliest, but what you think they will choose. Yeah, well, that that's another no, class of games, right? The apples no. to apples games or cards against humanity or whatnot. That's another class of games in which you can take, in, take into account what the judge in that particular case, what they know and, and, and how they think, uh, you have to take that into account in order to figure out what your best play is and what cards you should put down. And then you mentioned, and then there's another class of games like bluffing games, which kind of gets into this too, right? So like Werewolf or Secret Hitler or something like that. Um, you you have your, your information that you know for sure. Uh, you may or may not know the role that another player has. So you have to kind of take that all into account as you play those sorts of games, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, so then one would see a developmental progression then, I guess, right? Differences in development and ability to play those sorts of games? That's a really good point. Yeah, I think the um, 
it would be incredibly hard to play taboo <laughs> or those sorts of uh, those, um, first of all, straight up personal reference games because three-year-olds certainly aren't going to get these and, and certainly those are very linguistically based games, right? right. Um, but bluffing games it's often hard for kids to understand bluffing. Um, and part of it is probably tied to what Piaget said, they're taking their own perspective and what theory of mind suggests is they're not considering what they know is not the same as what everyone knows. The three-year-old who thinks you, who've not seen the inside of this crayon box, thinks there's candles in there, thinks there's some magical shared knowledge. I know this, so you know this. You know, it's the kid in the back seat going, oh, look at the boo-boo on my knee while you're driving and can't consider the fact that you can't see what they can see. So bluffing's out of the, totally out of the picture for them. It's going to be harder for that. And it's going to be probably even more frustrating until kids are probably at, towards the end of elementary school. Um, while they might have a pretty good ability to pass, and that's the, ta the term we use is, can they pass a theory of mind task? And most five-year-olds can. It's going to be even harder, though, for them to take that to the next level. Uh, I'm going to say this so I can sneak their mind to think it's this way. So I'm playing the Sheriff of Nottingham, and I'm going to tell them that I have five chickens in here when I really have seven breads or whatever it mm -hmm. might be. And part of that bluffing is, am I? do I have the ability to think I'm going to trick them? And then the other part of it is social because a you know, kids can just start cracking up because it's they they haven't quite figured out. There's a lot more to bluffing than just what you say is what you're trying to convey. So much like chess, I should only play Sheriff of Nottingham with 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 preschoolers. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> now then, we have been uh, doing a lot of thinking about apples to apples. Uh, so we've been working on a getting a, a study together, an experiment together. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about the experiment that we're thinking about? Yeah, we um, have uh, received a grant uh, internally from our university um, based on the idea that um, one of the things I, I like about theory of mind is that it opens up the idea of how do we actually look at what people's knowledge states and the differentiation between their knowledge states and another knowledge state of someone else, how does that literally work in the world. What are you literally doing with it? I mean, what we've been talking about, playing games. If I have a cognitive mindset rooted in, I have to think about what the other player knows, that is theory of mind in practice. It's being played out. But it's not always been studied in depth. Um, my unpublished dissertation, I looked at a, a mistake a kid was playing in a a game I had invented that I, loosely based on some other research and kids could figure out, oh yeah, this kid's making a mistake. Um, but the next obvious lesson in that is if you can see someone else making mistakes or making good moves, what, how does that change your behavior? Um, so we want to establish first of all that in contexts like games, that people are going to apply a theory of mind and they're going to make guesses about, oh, so going back to apples to apples, oh, that's the kind of thing they find funny. They find potty humor funny. Or the things that they love are superhero based or uh, Disney based. So you're working on creating our, our game 
right? Right, yep. So we're working on exemplars and um, trying to craft a opponent, so to speak, with my air quotes you can't see here, uh, where or a player you're playing against where you're going to try to predict which things they would like the best. What are the things they're going to select as the most funny or the most smelly or the... Uh, um, you know, most exceptional. And um, we're working on seeing can repeated um, exposure to another player's selections in a game, can that help you shape, oh, okay, now I have, I, I came into playing this game against someone who I didn't know at all, but now I've gathered up information over multiple iterations of their behaviors. And now I have a better sense of their beliefs, their intentions, and their preferences when it comes to the context of this game. Right. And we're going to do that not only by seeing what selections they make as they play this apples to apples type game, but also by asking them, well, why'd you make that move, right? Why, why'd you mm -hmm. put make this one high? Why'd you make this one low? Um, and getting into their thought process as to why they made those particular selections. Which is an interesting side note, because you would think that as generally speaking, most of the population has a theory of mind um, that we would rely on words that imply a theory of mind. I knew that you would pick this, or I believe that your preferences lead you to this, um, which is kind of interesting because there's some research that shows we don't really you know, lean into using those verbs, but we're hoping that we'll be able to see some of that talk that, that our participants will say, you know, I, I thought about what you kept selecting and I knew this was likely. So can they use a, uh, a vocabulary that kind of pulls from this idea of theory of mind? Right, yeah, so this uh, notion of theory of mind uh, very should be very pervasive here in game playing, right? Because most games you do have to take into account what the other person's going, thinking about or might do on their next move. Absolutely, and I think it's harder, you were saying before about you know people who you've played with for uh, a lot or people who you've just met. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's that is going to be a factor in how well you know the game, right? So if you go, if you sent me in to play a magic tournament at the local game shop here, I would stink because I have never played magic, but, um, and I'm up against people who I don't know. But if I know the game well, and then I'm going to interact with people who I don't know, how how's that going to balance out versus how if I, I'm playing a game I know well against people who I know well? It'll be interesting to see. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm like, I, we're uh, designing the study now and getting it all together. And hopefully in the fall, depending upon how things go, uh, we'll get some uh, participants uh, and see how they make choices playing this apples to apples game. And I think we even have some other ideas about what the next steps are beyond that, but we'll keep everybody in suspense until we first get the first set of data. Okay. Well, Dr. Blessing. Yes, Dr. Blessing. <laughs> Thanks for uh, talking to us today about uh, Theory of Mind and sharing your thoughts on it. My pleasure. And uh, thanks uh, to the listeners. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation here about Theory of Mind. Um, I encourage you to tell your friends about the podcast. And um, uh, please uh, go to iTunes or uh, Stitcher, wherever you listen to Cognitive Gamer, and uh, give us a, a five-star rating. We appreciate that to get the word out. Um, and uh, until next time, uh, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs>